Would you live on a lunar colony? How about Mars? Would you give up literally all of the comforts of home, Earth, in order to live in someplace new? Not just simply moving from one country to another and changing cultural paradigms, but leaving the planet you evolved on, and are quite literally customized for, in order to live in what can only be described as something new, something alien. How about giving up direct personal contact with most, if not all, of your loved ones for extended periods of time? Just the idea of having a real-time conversation with a friend back on Earth takes on a new dimension when time delays are accounted for. What if food, where even the very taste of food as you knew it on Earth, is changed, muted by the realities of space on human taste buds? Even though built by humans, these colonies would be alien worlds of sorts. Differences in gravity, differences in the realities of day-to-day -day life, differences in culture among your fellow humans and many other factors will make colonization of the Moon or Mars amongst the most unique experiences in human history. You will be an explorer if you go. Something in the grain of the very first humans to leave our native Africa and spread out on the continents of this world, of which we are now present to some degree on all of them. I've always found it sad that the stories of the people that took those first steps into what was then an alien world have been lost. No one yet knew how to write them down. This is of course not the case now. Stories of colonization will be broadcast to all people of this world who will follow the progress and the personalities of the colonists, like the world followed the first lunar landings with bated breath. The first colonists of these worlds will be rock stars, or victims of tragedy, all forms of human narrative will play out in these new territories of humanity, and while the settings may be different, the human stories will remain much the same. Going to these worlds will be love stories, stories of strife, stories of passion, and no doubt, tragedy. While we are not yet there for these, for lack of a better term, reality stories to unfold before us, we are close. By 2030, if SpaceX has its way, and has some decent success, there could well be the beginnings of a colony on Mars. Perhaps it will take a bit longer, but maybe earlier, we shall see. But what we can say today is that we are sufficiently advanced to the point that imagining colonies and setting fictional stories within them is here and credible. These are not the imaginings of Burroughs, where one is mysteriously transported to Mars to interact with the inhabitants of a dying world. Rather, the world is, so far as we know, already dead and we have the technology to at least survive on it. And from that comes the nuts and bolts hard science fiction of my guest, who is perhaps among the best ever at fictionalizing real potential environments that people will confront as the beginning of our period of solar system colonization begins. You're listening to Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. Andy Weir, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Andy, you uh, recently wrote a short story that you released online called Digitocracy, and there will be a link in the description below to that. Now, this short story's premise, without going into spoilers, is the dangers of AI, or maybe not the dangers, just the realities of uh, an artificial intelligence interacting with humanity. Is this something that scares you? No, not at all. It's interesting. Digitocracy is getting a lot more attention than I expected. I, I wasn't trying to make a... <laughs> I wasn't trying to make a statement or anything. It's just uh, it's just a short story I wrote. And uh, I actually think that AIs and computers and stuff are going to dramatically improve the world. I think that like if you if, if you take a look at something like AlphaGo, right? It's it or Alpha Alpha Zero, which plays chess. 
it, it's now to the point where the computers can play chess and go better than any human, right? Well, what, what about what happens when we get an AI that can manage an economy better than any human? You know, then that'd be interesting because if you do what the AI says, it's like, well, we don't fully understand it, but it said to increase the uh, tariff on imported barley by 0.03%, and now we're having a housing boom. <laughs> you know, so it could be really interesting. What that brings up in my mind, though, is that if an AI can run an economy better than humans can, and say it can create laws better than humans can, it could also do things like do science better than humans can. You know, a, a computer could be a better scientist. Now, in the 30s, the economist Keynes had pointed out in a paper that eventually this means the entire human race goes unemployed. So do you think that one of the dangers of AI is the social upheaval that comes from technological unemployment? That that unemployment is the best thing ever, because I think that broadly speaking, like, you know, in tens of thousands of years, when people look back on the history of the human race, they'll be like, you know, the Paleolithic era and stuff like that. We are in the scarcity era and we're working toward post-scarcity when we reach post-scarcity that's when people don't have to work at all like everything you need is dealt with by automation so it's like it's okay if everybody loses their job if you if nobody needs to do a job if it's like hey i'm sick well go go to the doctor it's like okay it's it's a computer but it it takes care of you and it's like Hey, I'm I'm hungry. Well, go get some of the food that our robots and computers are generating for you. You know, it's uh, once you reach that point of post scarcity, that's that's good, not bad. So when do we go unemployed? Uh, when does when do we reach a point where a an artificial intelligence can write a better novel than a human can? I am I think about that a lot, and I I suspect that there will be fiction author computers that are comparable to humans like in in my lifetime it wouldn't surprise me at all when you when you come down to it stories are structures and basically once an ai has the ability to evaluate the readability of a book like to evaluate how good is the story you know then an ai will be able to try out a, a whole bunch of variations evaluate them and say here here's a story now, I might start off with an AI that says, here are the plot beats of a story. Here are the events that happen. And then it's up to, you know, it'll be up to a human to actually, you know, write the prose that conveys the story. But then eventually the computers will get, you know, good at that, too. <laughs> I think I, I, I'm just hoping all that happens, you know, at, you know after I retire. <laughs> Me, too. And I'm definitely not looking forward to the day that that. A computer can make a YouTube video. Well, also think about what's next is that like with, you know, computer graphics being what it is and processor power going up, the computer would be able to write a movie and then create it. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely from scratch. Like, yeah. I'm like, or you could even make it custom. It might be it might be in the future that movies aren't these big releases that are made, you know, by by huge studios. It's like you tell your computer, uh, I'm in a sad mood. Make me a romantic comedy, please. Oh, and make one of the characters a professional juggler, and then it'll do it. <laughs> now, if you could do that, having both of your, your big books having been um, 
option for movies, made into movies. Would you make your own movie? Would you remake The Martian, or would you just leave the leave it as it is? Well, I I loved. The, I think they did a fantastic job making The Martian. Or, or are you talking about in a future where the computer can just remake stuff for you? Or I lost. Them. Can remake? Lost yeah, can remake stuff for you. For example, now I loved The Martian, the movie as well. It was fantastic. But the book, there was more in the book. So would you as an author prefer to make your own version of The Martian with your, your AI movie maker as opposed to just leaving the cultural significance of the original one behind and just leaving it I, at that? I'd, I'd leave the original one alone because if I have my AI movie maker, I'd want to see new stuff. <laughs> I, I'd be like, hey, I want you to uh, – AI movie maker, here's, this, I, here's an idea for my next book. Uh, make me a movie out of it. <laughs> I, I say that I say that sort of tongue in cheek because Stephen King always complains about how you know he never really likes the movies like The Shining. He never really likes those versions of his books because they get changed and moved around. But um, doesn't bother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you also have a, a semi new book uh, out, Artemis, which is about lunar colonization. Can you give me just sort of a synopsis of of what the premise is? Sure. Uh, Artemis takes place in humanity's first city that's not on Earth. It's on the moon. It's the only city on the moon. The name of the city is Artemis. Its economy is based primarily on tourism. It's very close to the Apollo 11 landing site, which is a big tourist draw. It takes place in the 2080s, and the main conceit is that competition in the commercial space industry drove the price to low Earth orbit down low enough that middle-class people can afford to go into space. And so it becomes economically sensible to build a tourist destination on the moon. The main character is a woman who's a small-time criminal. Mostly she smuggles contraband into the city, things like tobacco. It, flammable things are illegal <laughs> in this pressurized area. <laughs> She's a small-time criminal, and she gets an opportunity. She's offered by a local business magnate uh, the opportunity to do some uh, industrial sabotage on his behalf, and the payoff is good enough to set her for life. And, of course, everything goes fine. Uh, everything goes to plan, and there are no problems from that point forward. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, she gets in way over her head, and that's what the story's about. <laughs> now, your main character, Jazz, is what, – what I found most interesting was that she's poor. She's the, the, low, the low man on the totem pole on the moon. Do you think it would really mm -hmm. work that way? If we had a lunar colony, would it sort of – break down on that or would it be something new uh no i think the economics would be the same i mean i based our since artemis gets its money from the tourism industry i based it on caribbean resort towns like single single industry income you know tourism industry only income areas and they all if you look at them everywhere in the world regardless of what group of people or culture or whatever makes it it always ends up the same there's the glitzy touristy areas up, you know, in one place. And then there's kind of the, you know, not so well off people who work and uh, who live there and work at the touristy areas. And there's the, the people in the middle who kind of service the residents like, okay, there's tourists, that means there's waiters and those waiters need shoes, which is why we have a, a cobbler, you know. So that's kind of what I based Artemis on. And jazz is at the at the low end of it. Mainly because she doesn't apply herself. <laughs> now, one of the things that hallmarks your novels is that they're sort of nuts and bolts science fiction. You get deeply into the realities of what you would need to do to run, for example, a lunar colony as an Artemis. Now, 
you mentioned in there, basically the moon has everything you need to colonize it, including oxygen. That's all locked yeah. up in its mineralogy. Yeah. How feasible is that to really do that? Do you think we could actually go and mine the moon and oh, build a colony? Um, absolutely. Uh, no, no question about it, uh, because it's all right there. In fact, you don't even need to mine the moon. You just need to pick the rocks up off the surface. There's no layer of dirt, earth, clay, water, or, you know, or anything else between you and the ore. So it's not like you need to dig. You just need to scoop. 85% of the material in the lunar highlands is anorthite, which is a mineral that is made of aluminum, uh, silicon, calcium, and oxygen. And if you smelt that, like just using industrial smelting techniques, then you get, uh, then you separate those out into their elements, and you end up with elemental aluminum, which is great for building hulls, and just an enormous amount of oxygen. Uh, it's an it's absurd how much oxygen there is on the moon. I think it's the second most, second or third most common element on the moon. It's just that it's all in the minerals, so you don't. It's not like there's an atmosphere. Now you also. When you when you were world building, you also made it to where like the environment within the domes is pure oxygen at a lower um, pressure. Now, you also brought into that the, the question of fires is how, yes. how dangerous would that really be? Um, it's OK. So uh, this causes a lot of confusion for people because everybody knows about the Apollo 1 fire was caused by them being in a pure oxygen environment. Pure oxygen is uh, it, it, you know, oxygen is the limiting reagent in fire, right? That's what makes it. The more oxygen there is, the faster the fire goes. Now, in the case of Apollo 1, they were at um, like they, they were at 120% of Earth's atmosphere of a pure oxygen because they pressure-wise pressure-wise. Yeah. So the pressure inside was um, of the Apollo 1 capsule was 1.2 atmospheres when they were doing the plugs out test, and it was of pure oxygen. So, and if you're just the room you're in right now, uh, the pressure is one atmosphere, obviously, and the uh, and that air is 20% oxygen. Uh, just the air in our atmosphere is about 20% oxygen. So. That means if you just take any cubic meter of your room, you're going to have some number of oxygen molecules. Well, if you uh, did the same thing in the Apollo uh, 1 capsule at that time, there would be six times as many oxygen molecules in that same volume. Now, why did they do that? Why did they pressurize it so, so heavily? Uh, because they were uh, doing uh, what's called a plugs-out test. They wanted to test the independent uh, computer systems, whatever, and they wanted the capsule to be under pressure. When in space, it was going to be 20% of Earth's atmospheric pressure of pure oxygen, same as Artemis, right? Um, or more accurately, Artemis is same as the Apollo program, right? And that, that makes perfect sense because your body doesn't need all the nitrogen and the other crap that's in the atmosphere. All you need is the oxygen. And if you just, you know, lower the pressure slowly so that your body gets used to it, but lower the pressure to one-fifth of an atmosphere, uh, you know, 20% of our atmosphere and give you pure oxygen, then you're getting this, the, then you're getting all the oxygen you need. You're totally fine. And your body doesn't mind being at one fifth of an atmosphere. As long as you, like I said, as long as you go there slowly, so you don't get the bends. Right. Okay. Now, so they wanted, so that's how they designed the Apollo capsule. And so they wanted to test it when it's at pressure. Um, so in other words, they wanted a positive pressure of 20% of an at 0.2 atmospheres. 
on the inside. But the only way to do that at sea level is to pressurize it up to 1.2 atmospheres. You see, because the outside error was also going to be one atmosphere. So by doing that, they ended up putting uh, just six times as much oxygen in that little confined space than would normally be on a, on a normal flight. And a fire started and it just, uh, it was uh, horrific. In Artemis, it is, uh, Artemis's environment is like, um, is 20% 20 of Earth's atmosphere, 100% oxygen. So it has the same amount of oxygen as Earth's atmosphere by volume. So, you know, if you transported your room, the room you're in to Artemis, there would be the same number of oxygen molecules wandering around. So fire doesn't burn any faster in Artemis than it, than it would at sea level on Earth. However, the reason they're so picky about fire is not because of pure oxygen atmosphere and Apollo 1 fears. It's because it's a, pressure, it's, a, it's a confined pressurized environment. There's nowhere for the smoke to go. Fire is incredibly dangerous when you're in an environment that has nowhere for the smoke to go. Um, it's like a fire aboard a submarine. F uh, fire is the worst thing for a submarine. A leak is something they can fix fairly easily, but a fire is a disaster. Now, it would also, of course, produce like carbon dioxide as well. So you would have... And monoxide. And, yeah. Yeah. So now in, in, in Artemis, you describe a fire in an aluminum factory that's producing oxygen. So that that Actually, it's a glass, glass glass factory, yeah. So, but you're able to save the people, for you know you have yeah, the yes. time. Um, mm -hmm. When you, how did you deal with that? You know the 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 smoke and the byproducts of the of that fire. How did you get rid of those in uh, Artemis? Well, um, first off, they uh, the the glass factory uh, it. it a fire happened in the glass factory. And of course, Artemis was not designed by idiots. You know, there's a bunch of really smart people designed it. So anywhere that's a, there are these fire safe rooms. So the rooms themselves cannot, uh, are, are, the fire can't propagate from one of these sealed fire safe rooms to anywhere else. And in the event of a fire, they actually, the, the, the room will lock off. It's better to let everyone in that room die than to let a fire spread throughout the city. So, however, those rooms have what are called air shelters. And so it's a, a separate, basically these little kind of like small pods that people can get into and close. And it's got a very limited amount of life support. And the idea is that then other people like fire crews will come and, and get you out of there. And that, that happens in the book. Um, all the employees of the glass factory managed to get into the air shelter. Then firefighters came and Put a, attached a, a, a flexible tunnel to the air shelter and then brought it outside to where it was outside the fire area to where it was safe and all the people could get out. And then, then they just let the room uh, cool down. Like the the room had been sealed off, the fire had burned off all the oxygen, so they just let let the room cool down. And then they would later go in with filters stuff to clean the air of all the crap that got uh, <laughs> that got thrown up by the fire. Now, okay. Do you see us, the human species, actually building an Artemis, building a, a you know a colony on the moon? How do you see lunar colonization going in the real world? It's real simple. Uh, the same the same way any city gets built. It's always about economics. So when there's an economically viable reason to build a city on the moon, that's when we'll build a city on the moon. And that's that's actually what I started with. I, I started by saying like I want a city on the moon for my story, but it has to have some economic reason for existing. So I thought of a bunch of different things and what I came up with was tourism. So I think we will absolutely have a city on the moon because eventually 
the price to low Earth orbit will be driven down low enough that people can afford to go there. Ordinary people, not not super wealthy, crazy rich people, but like, you know, me. Well, I guess I'm one of those obnoxious one percenters nowadays. But but, you know, it, it, anybody could go. Anybody with a middle class income could go. So the so essentially tourism drives the the uh, industry. But what does the moon offer us? I mean, there's been talk about helium three being abundant on the moon and a possible way to fusion. Do you think we could do mining? Is there, other than helium-3, is there anything that we could send from the moon to here other than, you know, rocks for people to collect or something like that? Other than that, is there anything there? There is very, there's nothing on the moon that isn't also on Earth, with the possible exception of helium-3. And and there is helium-3 on Earth, there's just more of it on the moon. So the price to unless you got the price to orbit really low like absurdly low then it wouldn't be worth it because it you know whatever you're pulling out of the moon it's i guarantee you it's cheaper to pull it out of the earth even if it's much less common i mean if the moon was made of gold like pure gold it would still not be economically viable to send a ship there to collect gold and bring it back you see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So there's just no way to make it economically feasible. Although right. I now suppose let's talk about, oh, go ahead. some people say, though, that asteroids might actually be feasible for some metals. But, you know, uh, again, you have that same problem of just getting out, just getting your equipment out of Earth's atmosphere. And also, how do you get the how do you get the resulting materials back onto Earth? I mean, just the expense of the craft right now. Complete the question later on, possibly. But still, Earth is pretty big, and we've got a lot of rocks here, too. And there's literally nothing in the solar system that you can't find on Earth. So um, that having been said, I will talk about helium-3 for a moment. Um, helium-3 has some potential to be like part of a, you know, maybe future fusion technology. If that happened, then, yeah, we might start scouring the moon for helium-3. But if we did that, it, we wouldn't send up a civilization of humans to do it. We'd send robots. People die. People care if Uncle Bob dies, but nobody cares if a robot dies. And a robot's cheaper to make and easier to e easier to make, uh, you know, moonproof. And you can leave it there. <laughs> so uh, I don't see mining or resource acquisition as any sort of impetus to colonize. All right, Andy. Um, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll talk about your writing process and, of course, the Martian. And we are back with Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis. Andy, um, tell yeah, me about your writing process. You know, these books require a lot of research because they're uh, nuts and bolts, hard sci-fi. What? How much time does it take you, for example, to research a book like Artemis? Oh, it's really easy. What happened is I just uh, wrote one of those AIs we were talking about earlier to, that writes stories, and I just <laughs> tell it to make a book. I could have it make one or two every day, but I try to you know, keep the supply low so no one catches on. <laughs> I, I know something about that, too, AI. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's an that's an internal joke to the show. Um, um, oh, that wasn't, we, that wasn't on earlier? Yeah, 
that was on earlier. It we was, were talking no, about no, that. I, <laughs> I have a certain announcer for this show that's that's an AI. So oh, okay. I was just it. tipping tipping my hat to her, although she'll probably give me trouble for it. Um, <laughs> okay, but in 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 actual answer to your question, when I'm writing a story, I always start with a science. I always start with uh, some scientific principle or idea. For The Martian, I started off, I wasn't even trying to write a story. I was just uh, imagining how would we do, uh, you know, how would we put humans on Mars? How would that mission work? Uh, you know, how do you get them there? How do you get them back? How do you make sure they don't die if one thing goes wrong? We, you know, I was just designing a mission plan in my head. And then as I started to think about the things that could go wrong, then a story started to develop. For Artemis, I'm like, all right, I want to write a story about a city on the moon. I don't know what form that'll take. I don't know who will be in it. don't know what they'll do. don't know what the plot will be. But I want it to be in a city on the moon, damn it. So I'm going to make a city on the moon. So I got to work, and I, I, I started with the economics and then worked up with what I thought would be a reasonable way that the city would grow and like what the industries would be and all that stuff. And then from that, I started to get an idea for what people there must be like. It's almost like the Old West. you know. It's like this. there's no big law presence there, so it's really just society and culture that enforces laws, and like they have the equivalent of a sheriff and so on. The Society of Artemis started to come together, and then I started thinking about, okay, who, who who's interesting here? Well, some rich guy who lives on the moon. Well, that's fun fantasy to envision yourself as, but that's not a story. But a poor person struggling to make ends meet who also lives on the moon, now maybe that's interesting, and so on. So that's that's how I come up with the stories. In terms of my day-to-day -day process, uh, when I'm doing a first draft, I try to shoot for a 1,000 words a day, and I deny myself certain certain fun parts of life until I've finished my words for the day. Like I'm not allowed to watch TV or YouTube videos or uh, any, any form of video entertainment until I've finished my words for the day. Or, and there are certain websites that I like to go to that I, I say, I'm not allowed to go to them until I've finished my words for the day. Sometimes this works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Self-discipline can be, uh, is, is by far the most challenging part of writing, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Now, when you write that thousand words, how much of it do you, do you keep? Or do you have to throw away, which is what I have to do, do you have to throw away a you know, large you know, one or two weeks worth of work because you just don't like it? Absolutely. Do you ever have to do that, or does it just come out? As, um, in your no, head. I uh, well, I don't often throw away weeks worth of work, although I will, you know, I, I have done it. In fact, one time I threw away a year of work. <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. But for the most part, if if I have the plot flow going kind of the way I want, things go well. And of course, this is I'm just talking about the first draft, you know, as as I go through edit pass after edit pass after edit pass, entire sections get removed, plot points get changed. Yeah. So I don't know what percentage of the first draft actually makes it to the final draft it would probably make me sad if i knew the answer to that so i won't speculate yeah, too. too heavy on it too heavily on it but um yes as for throwing stuff away after i wrote the martian the publisher was very eager for me to write another book because it had sold so well and i had an idea for a story about aliens invading earth called and the, that was called Zhek z-h-e-k that's the name of the aliens mm -hmm. and like it was soft sci-fi. It wasn't my signature kind of hard science fiction that I that I now have found a niche for. But it was just like it had aliens and faster than light travel and telepathy and you know it was soft science fiction. The publisher was like, sure, great. Here's here's an advance. Get it done. And then I worked on that for about a year and I got seventy thousand words into it, which is for reference, The Martian is about a hundred thousand words. 
after I was 70,000 words into it, I was like, uh-oh, um, this sucks. And it did. It it sucked. It, it just wasn't good. And I, I realized, like, if I were reading this, I would have put the book down and given up on it by now. And I couldn't think of any way to make it work. It was just a fundamentally... It just the core story elements were not working. I was I was like, you know, 70,000 words in and I was still in the first act and I just like nothing was working. So I called the publisher and asked them, hey, uh, this isn't working. Can I just write a completely different book and you give me another year on my deadline, please? And they said yes, because they'd been reading the chapters of Jack and they also knew that it sucked. So. <laughs> It ended well. It led to Artemis. Artemis is so much better than Jack would have been. And Jack, I put on a back burner and then I turned off the burner. I, I'll use it for parts later. There are certain plot elements that I think are, are really solid. It's just the whole of it. It didn't work. So, yes, I definitely know the pain of throwing away a lot of work. Yeah, cut your losses and repurpose ideas. Yeah. That's what you have to do. Now, in, in for example, like with The Martian, though, you know, there's been this titanic shift in the publishing industry done entirely by Amazon, which basically democratized everything. Anyone can release a book now. If you had advice for any upcoming authors to write and promote a book, what would you say to them? Well, I've got three bits of advice for authors in general. I can't speak too much to promotion, but uh, because I backed into my success and so I don't really know a lot about how to promote, I, I got lucky. In terms of writing, uh, rule number one is you have to write. If you uh, just have an idea in your head and you're daydreaming about plot points or ideas that you may do or something like that, you're not. You're just daydreaming. You're not actually writing unless you are putting words down on a page or into your word processor. So sit down and write. And, and it's when you start writing that you find all the problems in your story. When it's in your head, it's perfect. But once you start writing it, that's when the problems arise and that's when you're really writing. Number two, resist the urge to tell your friends and family your story or your story ideas. And that's hard to do, especially when you've got good ideas and you know they're good and your friends and family are like, whoa, that's awesome. Then what happens? It's really hard not to tell them. But you have to try to adopt that attitude because most authors, not all, but most, and certainly me, are driven by a, a, a desire to have an audience. We want other people to experience the stories that we've created and right. telling the story verbally to your friends and family is it satisfies your need for an audience and it saps your will to actually write it. So the best advice I can give on that is make a rule for yourself. It says no one gets to find out anything about this story. No one gets to experience it in any way other than reading it. And that'll help motivate you to write it. Now you can still give them to you can give it to your friends and family a chapter at a time if you want to get the sweet, sweet validation that you crave. You don't have to you don't you, you don't have to just um, you know finish an entire book before anybody sees it. But don't tell them about it you know in advance. Make them read it. And then the last bit of advice is more directly on topic with what you asked. Yes, this is there's never been a better time in history to self-publish. In the old days, self-publishing meant you had to put out a big capital outlay, and it would always almost always mean that you had a garage full of vanity pressed books that that nobody wants. Nowadays, uh, self-publishing self costs you exactly zero. It doesn't cost you anything except for, you know, the time that you put into writing it. But that's something you wanted to do anyway. And if your story's good, it'll float to the top. Like, it'll get around. People will recommend it to each other. They'll start – it'll it'll start getting up on the seller's list. 
in terms of promotion, like I said, I don't know anything about it. I, I got lucky. Uh, my story got around by word of mouth. I did literally nothing to promote it. Definitely, if you're going to self-publish, I would say set the price point to whatever the minimum is. Uh, when I did it for The Martian, the, the minimum was 99 cents. So that's what I set the price to. Don't create any barrier to entry between you and your readers, right? You know, when you're first, when you're first getting, when you're first starting out, what you need to do is accumulate a reader base. So don't, don't go into it with, uh, with money in mind right on the outset. Now with promotion, I can say, I can speak to a little bit of that. It, you know, a, a large YouTube channel helps. So any social media that inspiring writers can take advantage of and sort of build a following that's outside of your book where you can, you know, actually- we, uh, we don't all have the ability to just casually go off and make a YouTube channel with 75,000 subscribers. <laughs> just, That's true. Just That's, saying. I, I, will, I will concede that. But, um, but anything, if you can create a Facebook um, and promote there, you know, you, sometimes you'll see authors. I know David Brin does it where you, you create a sort of a community on Facebook. That's helpful. Also, Goodreads, you know, posting there and, and sort of talking with people about your book is helpful. But Fundamentally, if you're going to be an Amazon author, also use their promotional skills because sometimes you can give it away free, or at least you used to be able to. I'm not sure if that's yeah. They 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 you can have events where you have a a a, a giveaway briefly. Right. Yeah, but the best way to get Amazon to promote your book is for it to sell well initially. Then right. it starts showing up on the top sellers list. It, it, it'll snowball at that point if you can get there. But the the hard part is getting there to that tipping point. And uh, yeah. I, I got there. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, quite a few people do. I mean, and oh. you know, the interesting thing about it with Amazon is that most of the authors that are making a living there don't make any lists or the New York Times list, but they do make a living, you know, paying yeah. bills. And there are lots. There are thousands of these people. And anyone that, that is aspiring to write should write and go that route. Yeah. You've um, got you, you have literally nothing to lose. Literally nothing. Literally. Literally nothing except no downside, know. except maybe it hurts your ego if you find out that nobody likes your stuff. But right. that's that's welcome to being a writer. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's uh, what is it? Give a man a book. You entertain him for a night. Teach a man to write. You give him crippling self-doubt for life. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very true. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about your, your writing process, you both the Martian and Artemis are in first person, which they used to tell us never do that. You know, uh, never love it. First person. Now I do. I don't too. know who they are, but they're full of crap. I love first person. <laughs> I love it too. And 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 the thing is, is if you can do it well, which you're you're a master at it, if oh, you can do it well, it's actually I think the most interesting way to tell a story, um, because you gain a perspective of the main character that you don't get in third person. But would you ever write in third person, or, or would you just continue with with first? As I, far as uh, I would definitely write in third, uh, and I do. A lot of my shorts are in third person. We were talking earlier about digitocracy. That's third person. But it's uh, first person is wonderful. It has a few drawbacks when you're writing that can make things a pain in the butt. But the cool thing is about it is that when you're when you're an omniscient or third person, whatever narrator, you 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 have to have a certain class to yourself. You you have to have a certain com- uh, I don't know, way of comporting yourself, the language you use, the words you use, the turns of phrase seem to, you feel this need to be kind of professional. When you're first person, you get to 
in it, you, you get to be the character and talk the way they would talk. You can speak casually. You can use funny turns of phrase. And also, it's just such a huge toolbox of tricks for letting the reader know things about the character, the parts of the, 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 the things that the character is focusing on and the things the character is ignoring, which can sometimes be kind of comedic, you know, and the personality of the character, you, you really get in there. And also exposition. In first person, it makes a little, you can get away with naked exposition a little bit better because first person is almost like a guy is telling you this story over a beer. You know, the downside of first person, the biggest downside is you can't change your location. You can't, you can't get out of that POV. You're stuck with that person. Unless you do like cheesy stuff like I did, which is about half the, all the chapters of the Martian that are not taking place on Mars are omniscient. <laughs> so when you create a character like Jazz or Mark Watney, how much of yourself, you know, I, I know this, that you, you know, authors tend to put aspects of their personality into a character. Or at least yeah. I, do you oh. do that? Is, uh, oh God, yes. Are you your characters? I am. And uh, Mark Watney is just me. He's just the, uh, he's the idealized me. He's, He's all of the aspects of my personality that I like about myself and none of the parts that I don't like. You know, he's the idealized version of me. He's what I wish I could become. Jazz is a little bit more like the real me. She has my flaws and she has them magnified. And she still has some of the qualities that I like about myself. Personally, I'm proud of being a smartass. But yeah, she she has like I I am a lot like jazz on my bad days, and uh, she's flawed in very much the same ways I am, and uh, so that's kind of what I dug into because I wanted to make a deeper, more interesting character for Artemis, and that's uh, right. so I so kind of dug into my uglier side, <laughs> the darker side, the darker side, darker side. She lives on the moon. Of course, she has a dark side. <laughs> That now, was the UK publishing uh, tagline. That's cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So when you all right, when you set out to write a book, do you have an ending when you start? Do you know how the, your stories are going to end? Not always. I know broadly what's going to happen. Like when I started The Martian, I knew that it would end with him being rescued. Spoiler, by the way. Uh, you know, <laughs> so but of course, not not a very <laughs> not a very far stretch of a spoiler, though. Yeah. And also, if you haven't read or seen The Martian by now, kind of you've you know, you've missed your window to not be spoiled. I knew I, I knew that he would be rescued. But, you know, when I first started out The Martian, my plan was for it to be all log entries. And it was just going to be about him, his journey and like his side of things. And he was actually not going to be discovered by NASA at all. He was just going to show up at the Ares 4 landing site and go, hi, guys. You know, and, was like, right. and, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the idea. But then I, I went I went a very different direction. So I guess broadly, I know what's going to happen. But how it's going to get there, uh, I'm I'm in the dark about. So you basically just have an, an outline in your head. Kind of. I mean, I'll even I'll even write out outlines sometimes. But I find that I go off book like almost immediately. Like I'll come up with, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I've got these twelve steps that are going to happen. And then I'm halfway through step one, and I'm like, wait, it would be such a cooler story if blah, you know. And I I discover these things as I'm writing. So. I can plot it out in advance as much as I want, but the end result is always going to be something very different. 
Interesting. Now, when we come back, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we will get to the nuts and bolts of Mars colonization and your book, The Martian. So we will be right back. And we're back with Andy Weir, author of The Martian. And speaking of, we'll move from um, jazz to Mark Watney. Andy, what do you think... It's sort of the same question I asked early on. What do you think the chances are that we will colonize Mars in the, you know, the next 100 years? Do you, are you on the side that says, okay, Elon Musk may have this done by 2030? Or do you think it's just going to take a lot longer and be a government project um okay so uh the short answer is i think it's gonna be a real long time um the longer answer is it depends on your definition of colonize now if you mean people just deciding i'm going to emigrate to mars and live there then that means you have like a fully cohesive human society existing on mars not necessarily independent it may have trade with earth and stuff like that but it it would have to be like a, a full you know a full on society. It'd have to be a city or a collection of cities, and it's going to be I honestly think centuries before that happens um, to Mars. Um, there's just no reason to do it. There's nothing there. Yeah, you know, all, all the colonization that you look at in the past. Um, well, in 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 our recorded history, colonization always includes like killing off the people who owned the land in the first place and then taking it. But um, even if you go all the way back to like 50,000 years ago when the first humans crossed the land bridge into North America. So this was like for them, untouched land. You know, it was, it was uh, you know, a free for all kind of like kind of like Mars is now. For them, the reason they went was population pressure from elsewhere and the fact that there are lots of resources usable in the new location. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's food over here and there isn't food over there. So we're going over here. That's not the case with Mars. Mars has nothing for you. It's cool. People like the idea of living on Mars. But the reality is there's no reason to go. Um, so I think it's going to be a really long time before we have, see cities on Mars. And I do believe that the first human beings on Mars will be part of a large government mission. Um, because eventually technology will drive the price down low enough that it is within reach to happen, and governments will be the things that can afford to do it first. There's no, there's no wealthy magnate who's going to have more money than the United States federal government. Now, if now say far future, let's say 500 years from now, does it become at some point viable to, say, terraform Mars? Yes, absolutely. At that point, it starts to get interesting uh, because then you would now have resources because if Mars, if you terraformed Mars, then what you have is growable cropland, agriculture, uh, the ability to live without special technology on the surface and, and that sort of thing. And uh, Mars is definitely terraformable. Um, uh, there are a lot of theories on how you could make it have a, you know, an atmosphere that would heat it up. It would take like a hundred years or something like that, but it, it could be done. And everything that you need is right there on the planet. So that is a much more viable thing. 
And if it were terraformed, then, the, then it'd be a little bit better to go there because you'd have a whole planet full of life. Uh, well, it'd be Earth life, but it'd be life. And that that, that might be a good way to go. <laughs> now you have, is it sort of the same situation with the moon where you have everything you need as far as raw materials, if you have the technology to do it, if you have the mm. technology to go there, do you have everything you need at Mars as well? Or would you have to send something <clears throat> from Earth? No, actually, you have more. You, you you don't actually have everything you need on the moon. Uh, the, the lunar colony, and well, it, so in Artemis, for instance, Artemis itself is heavily reliant on trade with Earth. Um, if Earth disappeared, Artemis would just everybody die there pretty, you know, within a month or two. But, I mean, that's where they get the, they get a lot of their food from Earth. They get, I mean, it would, yeah, they they get materials from Earth. And here's the big thing: there is no way to grow a biosphere on the moon. There's no way to extend it because there's no carbon and there's very, very little hydrogen. Um, so if you, if you imagine try like a self-sustaining moon population, they wouldn't be able to increase their population. They wouldn't be able to grow more crops in order to support more people or anything because the carbon is just not there to grow it. So Mars, however, is different. Mars is very different. There are four elements that you need to have a, a biosphere expand. You need carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And Mars has all four of them in very large supply. So actually, um, colonizing Mars is, uh, if, if you get to the point where, where you are colonizing it, everything you need is in situ. It's on site. You're there. So that's pretty cool, at least. Including lots of water. A lot of water. We'll get to, we'll get to water and, and Mars uh, in a minute. But now, one of the things that I really liked about the Martian um, was that, you know, as a, I'm a gardener, which my regular listeners know that I have a love-hate relationship with plants. But <laughs> I, uh, I have grown potatoes, so I really appreciated watching the, the detail <laughs> that you put into Mark Watney growing potatoes on Mars. But Thanks. <laughs> but the one question I have is, if you really did that, there's a problem with Mars, the perchlorates. So yes. what do you have to do in order to get rid of those to grow? Is it just simply washing the soil or what do you what do you do? Well, there's a few there's a few things. So first off, uh, for the fictional story for the Martian, uh, perchlorates uh, don't cause any problems for plants. Uh, the plants would grow just fine. The problem is then when you eat the plants, you're getting perchlorates in your system and they're bad for you. But they're not like deadly toxins. They're just bad for you. So eating perchlorate-laced uh, vegetables is kind of like as bad for you as smoking. You, you can do it for quite a while, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. Um, uh, so, for, so for our hero, Mark, he was like risking, he probably did, a, you know, some decent amount of damage to himself with, per, you know, with perchlorate poisoning, but not, but not like you're going to die now. Uh, depends on how much there is in the local soil. Uh, but fortunately, um, just wash them right out. They're water soluble. So you take the Martian soil, soak it in water, drain it off, then redistill the water and the perchlorates are gone. Now, if you, which of course, again, you've got plenty of water ice to draw on. Uh, yes, something that I did not know when I wrote the Martian thing. So we didn't know that there was, like, I know it seems like this is just common knowledge and it's just mundane, but at the time I wrote the Martian, we didn't know if there was much water at all on Mars. And now we know that the place is just absolutely riddled with it. So poor Mark Watney reducing hydrazine to, uh, to get hydrogen to make water. He could have just gone outside 
scooped up some dirt, brought it in, and heated it up. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well, but, the, you know, the, so much, like you said, so much has changed about our understanding of Mars just over the last five years. It's just mm-hmm. been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's interesting because it, it Mars actually, because of that water, it looks more attractive for eventual yes. uh, colonization or just whatever we do with it. Well, also it, it it enables it enables all parts of the Sabatier reaction, which is a, a means by which of turning. Basically, you need water, carbon dioxide, and energy, and from that you can make methane and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. Yes, exactly. Um, and <laughs> so you could use, there's your trip home. There's your trip home, or as a stopping off point if you want to go to Europa or something like that, a human mission to um, the outer solar system. That's part of the at least part of the Elon Musk vision, which, you know, the question is, is, is that realistic? I don't think anybody really knows now. now not, not, not at the time frames he's suggesting. Right. Not so. a, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be. Um, although the refinements to his plans are kind of moving in a good direction. But anyway, now Mars has the one thing that's, that's, that I find the most fascinating about Mars is that it is possible that it once did and may still harbor some kind of primitive microbial life. And there are tantalizing hints. You know, we see these weird methane readings that appear. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what if they're volcanism or if they're related to life, but methane is a gas of life. Um, If we found, say, an aquifer with microbes in it on Mars. Oh, my God. That would be so... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing yeah it would be absolutely that would amazing. be like stop the presses then you would see like all kinds of probes heading to mars like we nasa's budget would go up a lot you know? well also yeah. imagine imagine if we found it and it is related to life on earth then we're confronted yeah. with the question is did life first arise on mars and did it arrive here from panspermia in which case mars is technically our home world <laughs> <laughs> we're all a bunch of uh we're we're just a bunch of martians who invaded earth yes we got it's time to take back the home world um, yes our exile is over but yes. um the if we found that what does that do to the to the idea of going to mars because ah, yeah well, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left before my heart out, but I'll try to be quick. Um, it completely changed our, not only our understanding of Mars and its geological history, but it also uh, had a huge effect on how we approach Mars. Now, we do uh, planetary protection, which is an attempt to keep from infecting Mars with Earth microbes because we don't want it to mess around with Mars's microbes, uh, if they have any. Um, and it would be like all of a sudden Mars would be like off limits until we very carefully figured out how best to study the life forms without disturbing their ecosphere. The one benefit that planetary exploration has is we don't need to worry about environmental effects. Like nobody cares about, you know, carbon emissions on the moon or whatever. But if Mars has its own biosphere, then we have to deal with all of that as well. And we want to not perturb it or disturb it. All of that having been said, oh, oh, and also it would just make, of, of course, a huge effect on our understanding of the solar system and, and how life evolved and where it evolved. And we first thing we'd want to know is, are we related or was it a second genesis? Either way, it's amazing. E- either way, it means that 
either we were seeded by Mars or vice versa, which is incredible, or there was a second genesis, meaning that Mars independently developed life, which means the Drake equation is turned upside down on its head, and that means there's probably life all over the damn place in the galaxy. Either way, though, um, unfortunately, I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, I strongly suspect Mars has no life and never had any life. And the reason I say this is because life is very, very good at evolving to go in different areas. It's very good at evolving to slowly changing ecological conditions. Mars lost its uh, atmosphere and its oceans very slowly. It took hundreds of millions of years. So if it had life back then, the life would have evolved with the changing environment and it would still have life now and if you um if you take any random sample from earth you're going to find it absolutely riddled with life just completely riddled with life it'd be very hard for you to find any a fistful of air dirt water or ice or anything that has no evidence of life in it and so i believe that once a planet has life it's going to get life everywhere and we haven't seen that on mars which leads me to believe it's never been there at all indeed yet you know maybe um you can hope you can hope you can hope we've well look, i would just, love to be wrong just we now know that liquid water you know just today liquid water may exist uh, beneath the surface of mars on that note, Andy has a hard out. So, Andy, thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope someday yeah. you'll come back and chat with me again. Yeah, sounds great. And we are back with Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis. Andy, um, tell yeah, me about your writing process. You know, these books require a lot of research because they're uh, nothing bolts, hard sci-fi. What, how much time does it take you, for example, to research a book like Artemis? Oh, it's really easy. What happened is I just uh, wrote one of those AIs we were talking about earlier to, that writes stories, and I just <laughs> tell it to make a book. I could have it make one or two every day, but I try to you know, keep the supply low so no one catches on. <laughs> I, I, I know something about that, too, AI. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's, an, that's an internal joke to the show. Um, but, um, uh, oh, that wasn't, we, that wasn't on earlier? Yeah, that was on earlier. We were was, talking no, about no, that. I, <laughs> I have a certain announcer for this show that's that's an AI. So oh, okay. I was just it. tipping tipping my hat to her, although she'll probably give me trouble for it. Um, <laughs> okay, but in 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 actual answer to your question, when I'm writing a story, I always start with a science. I always start with uh, some scientific principle or idea. For The Martian, I started off, I wasn't even trying to write a story. I was just uh, imagining how would we do, uh, you know, how would we put humans on Mars? How would that mission work? Uh, you know, how do you get them there? How do you get them back? How do you make sure they don't die if one thing goes wrong? We, you know, I was just designing a mission plan in my head. And then as I started to think about the things that could go wrong, then a story started to develop. For Artemis, I'm like, all right, I want to write a story about a city on the moon. I don't know what form that'll take. I don't know who will be in it. Don't know what they'll do. Don't know what the plot will be. But I want it to be in a city on the moon, damn it. So I'm going to make a city on the moon. So I got to work, and I, I, I started with the economics and then worked up with what I thought would be a reasonable way that the city would grow and like what the industries would be and all that stuff. And then from that, I started to get an idea for what people there must be like. It's almost like the Old West. you know. It's like this 
there's no big law presence there. So it's really just society and culture that enforces laws. And like they have the equivalent of a sheriff and so on. The society of Artemis started to come together. And then I started thinking about, okay, who, who who's interesting here? Well, some rich guy who lives on the moon. Well, that's fun fantasy to envision yourself as, but that's not a story. But a poor person struggling to make ends meet who also lives on the moon. Now, maybe that's interesting and so on. So that's that's how I come up with the stories. In terms of my day-to-day process, uh, when I'm doing a first draft, I try to shoot for a thousand words a day, and I deny myself certain certain fun parts of life until I've finished my words for the day. Like I'm not allowed to watch TV or YouTube videos or uh, any any form of video entertainment until I've finished my words for the day. Or and there are certain websites that I like to go to that I I say I'm not allowed to go to them until I've finished my words for the day. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Self-discipline can be, uh, is, is by far the most challenging part of writing, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Now, when you write that thousand words, how much of it do you, do you keep? Or do you have to throw away, which is what I have to do, do you have to throw away a you know, large you know, one or two weeks worth of work because you just don't like it? Absolutely. Do you ever have to do that, or does it just come out? As, as um, like a- No, I, uh, well, I don't often throw away weeks worth of work, although I will, you know, I I have done it. In fact, one time I threw away a year of work. (laughs) I'll get to that in a second. But for the most part, if, if I have the plot flow going kind of the way I want, things go well. And of course, this is, I'm just talking about the first draft, you know, as, as I go through edit pass after edit pass after edit pass, entire sections get removed, plot points get changed. Yeah. So I don't know what percentage of the first draft actually makes it to the final draft it would probably make me sad if i knew the answer to that so i won't speculate too heavy on it too heavily on it but um yes as for throwing stuff away after i wrote the martian the publisher was very eager for me to write another book because it had sold so well and i had an idea for a story about aliens invading earth called and that was called zhek z-h-e-k that's the name of the aliens Mm -hmm. and like it was soft sci-fi. It wasn't my signature kind of hard science fiction that I that I now have found a niche for. But it was just like it had aliens and faster than light travel and telepathy and you know it was soft science fiction. The publisher's like, sure, great. Here's here's an advance. Get it done. And then I worked on that for about a year and I got seventy thousand words into it, which is, for reference, The Martian is about a hundred thousand words. After I was seventy thousand words into it, I was like, uh oh. Um, this sucks. And it did. It it sucked. It, it just wasn't good. And I, I realized, like, if I were reading this, I would have put the book down and given up on it by now. And I couldn't think of any way to make it work. It was just a fundamentally, it just, the core story elements were not working. I was, I was like, you know, 70,000 words in and I was still in the first act and I just like nothing was working. So I called the publisher and asked them, hey, uh, this isn't working can I just write a completely different book and you give me another year on my deadline, please? And they said, yes, because they'd been reading the chapters of Jack and they also knew that it sucked. (laughs) So it ended well. It led to Artemis. Artemis is so much better than Jack would have been. And Jack, I put on a back burner and then I turned off the burner. I'll use it for parts later. There are certain plot elements that I think are, are really solid. It's just the whole of it. It didn't work. So, yes, I definitely know the pain of throwing away a lot of work. Yeah, cut your losses and repurpose ideas. Essentially, yeah. what you have to do. Now, in, in for example, like with The Martian, though, you know, there's been this titanic shift in the publishing industry done 
entirely by Amazon, which basically democratized everything. Anyone can release a book now. If you had advice for any upcoming authors to write and promote a book, what would you say to them? Well, I've got three bits of advice for authors in general. I can't speak too much to promotion, but uh, because I backed into my success and so I don't really know a lot about how to promote, I, I got lucky. In terms of writing, uh, rule number one is you have to write. If you uh, just have an idea in your head and you're daydreaming about plot points or ideas that you may do or something like that, you're, not, you're just daydreaming. You're not actually writing unless you are putting words down on a page or into your word processor. So sit down and write. And, and it's when you start writing that you find all the problems in your story. When it's in your head, it's perfect. But once you start writing it, that's when the problems arise, and that's when you're really writing. Number two, resist the urge to tell your friends and family your story or your story ideas. And that's hard to do, especially when you've got good ideas and you know they're good and your friends and family are like, whoa, that's awesome. Then what happens? It's really hard not to tell them. But you have to try to adopt that attitude because most authors, not all, but most, and certainly me, are driven by a, a, a desire to have an audience. We want other people to experience the stories that we've created. And right. telling the story verbally to your friends and family is it satisfies your need for an audience and it saps your will to actually write it. So the best advice I can give on that is make a rule for yourself. It says no one gets to find out anything about this story. No one gets to experience it in any way other than reading it. And that'll help motivate you to write it. Now you can still give them to you can give it to your friends and family a chapter at a time. If you want to get the sweet, sweet validation that you crave, you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to just, um, you know, finish an entire book before anybody sees it, but don't tell them about it, you know, in advance, make them read it. And then the last bit of advice is more directly on topic with what you asked. Yes, this is, there's never been a better time in history to self-publish. In the old days, self-publishing meant you had to put out a big capital outlay and it would always, almost always mean that you had a garage full of vanity pressed books that, that nobody wants. Nowadays, uh, self-publishing self costs you exactly zero. It doesn't cost you anything except for, you know, the time that you put into writing it. But that's something you wanted to do anyway. And if your story's good, it'll float to the top. Like, it'll get around. People will recommend it to each other. They'll start, it'll, it'll start getting up on the sellers list. In terms of promotion, like I said, I don't know anything about it. I, I got lucky. Uh, my story got around by word of mouth. I did literally nothing to promote it. Definitely, if you're going to self-publish, I would say set the price point to whatever the minimum is. Uh, when I did it for the Martian, the, the minimum was 99 cents. So that's what I set the price to. Don't create any barrier to entry between you and your readers, right? You know, when you're first, when you're first getting, when you're first starting out, what you need to do is accumulate a reader base. So don't, don't go into it with, uh, with money in mind right on the outset. Now with promotion, I can say, I can speak to a little bit of that. It, you know, a, a large YouTube channel helps. So any social media that inspiring writers can take advantage of and sort of build a following that's outside of your book where you can, you know, actually we, uh, we don't all have the ability to just casually go off and make a YouTube channel with 75,000 subscribers. <laughs> just, that's true. Just that's, saying. <laughs> I, I, will, I will concede that. But um, but anything, if you can create a Facebook um, and promote there, you know, you, sometimes you'll see authors. I know David Brin does it where you, you create a sort of a community on Facebook. That's helpful. Also, Goodreads, you know, posting there and, and sort of talking with people about your book is helpful. But 
fundamentally, if you're going to be an Amazon author, also use their promotional skills because sometimes you can give it away free, or at least you used to be able to. I'm not sure if that's yeah. They 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 you can have events where you have a a a, a giveaway briefly. Right. Yeah, but the best way to get Amazon to promote your book is for it to sell well initially. Then right. it starts showing up on the top sellers list. It, it, it'll snowball at that point if you can get there. But the the hard part is getting there to that tipping point. And uh, yeah, I I got there. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Actually, quite a few people do. I mean, and yeah. you know, the interesting thing about it with Amazon is that most of the authors that are making a living there don't make any lists or the New York Times list, but they do make a living, you know, paying yeah. bills. And there are lots, there are thousands of these people. And anyone that, that is aspiring to write should write and go that route. Yeah, you've um, got, you've, you have literally nothing to lose. Literally nothing. Literally nothing except. No downside, know. except maybe it hurts your ego if you find out that nobody likes your stuff. But right. that's, that's welcome to being a writer. You know, it's yeah. uh it's a, what is it? Give a man a book, you entertain him for a night, teach a man to write, you give him crippling self-doubt for life. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Very true. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about your, your writing process, you, both the Martian and Artemis are in first person, which they used to tell us never do that, you know, oh, never love in it. first person. Now, I, do I don't too. know who they are, but they're full of crap. I love first person. <laughs> I love it, too. And, and, and the thing is, is if you can do it well, which you're, you're a master at it, if okay. you can do it well, it's actually, I think, the most interesting way to tell a story um, because you gain a perspective of the main character that you don't get in third person. But would you ever write in third person or, or would you just continue with with first? As I, part uh, I would definitely write in third. Uh, and I do. A lot of my shorts are in third person. We were talking earlier about digitocracy. That's third person. But it's uh, first person is wonderful. It has a few drawbacks when you're writing that can make things a pain in the butt. But the cool thing is about it is that when you're when you're an omniscient or third person, whatever narrator, you 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 have to have a certain class to yourself. You, you have to have a certain, com, uh, I don't know, way of comporting yourself, the language you use, the words you use, the turns of phrase seem to, you feel this need to be kind of professional. When you're first person, you get to, in it, you, you get to be the character and talk the way they would talk. You can speak casually, you can use funny turns of phrase. And also it's just such a huge toolbox of tricks for letting the reader know things about the character. The parts of the, the 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 things that the character is focusing on and the things the character is ignoring, which can sometimes be kind of comedic, you know, and the personality of the character, you, you really get in there. And also exposition in first person, it makes a little you can get away with naked exposition a little bit better because first person is almost like a guy is telling you this story over a beer, you know. The downside of first person, the biggest downside is you can't change your location. You can't you can't get out of that POV. You're stuck with that person unless you do like cheesy stuff like I did, which is about half the all the chapters of The Martian that d are not taking place on Mars are omniscient. <laughs> so when you create a character like Jazz or Mark Watney, how much of yourself, you know, and I know this, that you, you know, authors tend to put aspects of their personality into a character. Or at least yeah. I, do you oh. do that? Is, uh, oh, God, yes. Are you your characters? I am. And uh, Mark Watney is just me. He's just the, uh, he's the idealized me. He's, he's all of the aspects of my personality that I like about myself and none of the parts that I don't like. 
You know, he's the idealized version of me. He's what I wish I could become. Jazz is a little bit more like the real me. She has my flaws and she has them magnified. And she still has some of the qualities that I like about myself. Personally, I'm proud of being a smart ass. But yeah, she she has like I I am a lot like jazz on my bad days. And uh, she's flawed in very much the same ways I am. And uh, so that's kind of what I dug into because I wanted to make a deeper, more interesting character for Artemis. And that's uh, right. so I so kind of dug into my uglier side. <laughs> the darker side. The darker side. Darker side. She lives on the moon. Of course, she has a dark side. <laughs> that now, was the UK publishing uh, tagline. That's cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So when you all right, when you set out to write a book, do you have an ending when you start? Do you know how your stories are going to end? Not always. I know broadly what's going to happen. Like when I started The Martian, I knew that it would end with him being rescued. Spoiler, by the way. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, but well, of course, not, not a very, not a very far stretch of a spoiler, though. Yeah. And also, if you haven't read or seen The Martian by now, kind of you've, you know, you've missed your window to not be spoiled. I knew I, I knew that he would be rescued, but. You know, when I first started out The Martian, my plan was for it to be all log entries. And it was just going to be about him, his journey, and like his side of things. And he was actually not going to be discovered by NASA at all. He was just going to show up at the Ares 4 landing site and go, hi, guys. You know, and that was like... Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the idea. But then I, I, went, I went a very different direction. So I guess broadly, I know what's going to happen. But how it's going to get there, uh, I'm I'm in the dark about. So you basically just have an an outline in your head. Kind of. I mean, I'll even I'll even write out outlines sometimes. But I find that I go off book like almost immediately. Like I'll come up with, okay, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I've got these twelve steps that are going to happen. And then I'm halfway through step one, and I'm like, wait, it would be such a cooler story if blah, you know. And I I discover these things as I'm writing. So. I can plot it out in advance as much as I want, but the end result is always going to be something very different. <laughs> Interesting. Now, when we come back, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we will get to the nuts and bolts of Mars colonization and your book, The Martian. So we will be right back. And we're back with Andy Weir, author of The Martian. And speaking of, we'll move from um, jazz to Mark Watney. Andy, what do you think... It's sort of the same question I asked early on. What do you think the chances are that we will colonize Mars in the you know the next one hundred years? Do you are you on the side that says okay, Elon Musk may have this done by two thousand thirty, or do you think it's just going to take a lot longer and be a government project? Um, okay, so uh, the short answer is I think it's going to be a real long time. Um, the longer answer is it depends on your definition of colonize. Now, if you mean people just deciding I'm going to emigrate to Mars and live there, then that means you have like a fully cohesive human society existing on Mars, not necessarily independent. It may have trade with Earth and stuff like that. But it it would have to be like a, a full, you know, a full on society. It would have to be a city or a collection of cities. And it's going to be, I honestly think, centuries before that happens um to mars um there's just no reason to do it there's nothing there yeah you know, all, all the colonization that you look at in the past um well in 
in in our recorded history, colonization always includes like killing off the people who owned the land in the first place and then taking it. But um, even if you go all the way back to like 50,000 years ago when the first humans crossed the land bridge into North America. So this was like for them, untouched land. You know, it was, it was uh, you know, a free for all kind of like kind of like Mars is now. For them, the reason they went was population pressure from elsewhere and the fact that there are lots of resources usable in the new location. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's food over here and there isn't food over there, so we're going over here. That's not the case with Mars. Mars has nothing for you. It's cool. People like the idea of living on Mars, but the reality is there's no reason to go. Um, so I think it's going to be a really long time before we have, see cities on Mars. And I do believe that the first human beings on Mars will be part of a large government mission, um, because eventually technology will drive the price down low enough that it is within reach to happen, and governments will be the things that can afford to do it first. There's no there's no wealthy magnate who's going to have more money than the United States federal government. Now, if now say far future, let's say 500 years from now, does it become at some point viable to say terraform Mars? Yes, absolutely. At that point, it starts to get interesting uh, because then you would now have resources because if Mars, if you terraformed Mars, then what you have is growable cropland, agriculture, uh, the ability to live without special technology on the surface and, and that sort of thing. And uh, Mars is definitely terraformable. Um, uh, there are a lot of theories on how you could make it have a, you know, an atmosphere that would heat it up. It would take like a hundred years or something like that, but it, it could be done. And everything that you need is right there on the planet. So that is a much more viable thing. And if it were terraformed, then, the, then it'd be a little bit better to go there because you'd have a whole planet full of life. Uh, well, it'd be Earth life, but it'd be life. And that that, that might be a good way to go. <laughs> Now you have, is it sort of the same situation with the moon where you have everything you need as far as raw materials, if you have the technology to do it, if you have the mm -hmm. technology to go there, do you have everything you need at Mars as well? Or would you have to send something <clears throat> from Earth? No, actually, you have more. You, you you don't actually have everything you need on the moon. Uh, the lunar colony, and well, it, so in Artemis, for instance, Artemis itself is heavily reliant on trade with Earth. Um, if Earth disappeared, Artemis would just everybody die there pretty, you know, within a month or two. They, I mean, that's where they get the, they get a lot of their food from Earth. They get, I mean, it would, yeah, they they get materials from Earth. And here's the big thing: there is no way to grow a biosphere on the moon. There's no way to extend it because there's no carbon and there's very, very little hydrogen. Um, so if you, if you imagine try like a self-sustaining moon population, they wouldn't be able to increase their population. They wouldn't be able to grow more crops in order to support more people or anything because the carbon is just not there to grow it. So Mars, however, is different. Mars is very different. There are four elements that you need to have a, a biosphere expand. You need carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And Mars has all four of them in very large supply. So actually, um, colonizing Mars is, uh, if, if you get to the point where, where you are colonizing it, everything you need is in situ. It's on site. You're there. So that's pretty cool, at least. Including lots of water. A lot of water. We'll get to we'll get to water and, and Mars uh, in a minute, but now one of the things that I really liked about the Martian um, was that 
you know, as a, I'm a gardener, which my regular listeners know that I have a love-hate relationship with plants. But <laughs> I, uh, I have grown potatoes, so I really appreciated watching the, the detail <laughs> that you put into Mark Watney growing potatoes on Mars. But Thanks. <laughs> but the one question I have is, if you really did that, there's a problem with Mars, the perchlorates. So yes. what do you have to do in order to get rid of those to grow? Is it just simply washing the soil, or what do you, what do, you do? Well, there's a few there's a few things. So first off, uh, for the fictional story for the Martian, uh, perchlorates uh, don't cause any problems for plants. Uh, the plants would grow just fine. The problem is then when you eat the plants, you're getting perchlorates in your system and they're bad for you. But they're not like deadly toxins. They're just bad for you. So eating perchlorate laced uh, vegetables is kind of like as bad for you as smoking. You you can do it for quite a while, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. Um, uh, so for, so for our hero, Mark, he was like risking, he probably did, a, you know, some decent amount of damage to himself with, per, you know, with perchlorate poisoning, but not, but not like you're going to die now. Um, uh, depends on how much there is in the local soil. Uh, but fortunately, um, just wash them right out. They're water soluble. So you take the Martian soil, soak it in water, drain it off, then redistill the water and the perchlorates are gone. Now, if you, which of course, again, you've got plenty of water ice to draw on. Um, yes, something that I did not know when I wrote the Martian. <laughs> so we didn't know that there was, like, I know it seems like this is just common knowledge and it's just mundane, but at the time I wrote the Martian, we didn't know if there was much water at all on Mars. And now we know that the place is just absolutely riddled with it. So poor Mark Watney reducing hydrazine to, uh, to get hydrogen to make water. He could have just gone outside scooped up some dirt, brought it in, and heated it up. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well, but, the, you know, the, so much, like you said, so much has changed about our understanding of Mars just over the last five years. It's just mm -hmm. been amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's interesting because it, it Mars actually, because of that water, it looks more attractive for eventual yes. uh, colonization or just whatever we do with it. Well, also it, it enables it enables all parts of the Sabatier reaction, which is a, a means by which of turning. Basically, you need water, carbon dioxide, and energy, and from that you can make methane and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. Yes, exactly. Um, and <laughs> so you there's, use, you, there's your trip home. There's your trip home, or as a stopping off point if you want to go to Europa or something like that, a human mission to um, the outer solar system. That's part of the at least part of the Elon Musk vision, which, you know, the question is, 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 is that realistic? I don't think anybody really knows now. now not, not, not at the time frames he's suggesting. Right. Not so. a, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be. Um, although the refinements to his plans are kind of moving in a good direction. But anyway, yeah. now Mars has the one thing that's, that's, that I find the most fascinating about Mars is that it is possible that it once did and may still harbor some kind of primitive microbial life. And there are tantalizing awesome. hints. You know, we see these weird methane readings that appear. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what if they're volcanism or if they're related to life. But methane is a gas of life. Um, if we found, say, an aquifer with microbes in it on Mars. Oh, my God. That would be so... <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing. Yeah, it would be absolutely amazing. That would amazing. be like stop the presses. Then you would see like all kinds of probes heading to Mars. Like we NASA's budget would go up a lot. You know? Well, also yeah. imagine imagine if we found it and 
and it is related to life on Earth. Then we're confronted yeah. with the question is, did life first arise on Mars? And did it arrive here from panspermia, in which case Mars is technically our home world? <laughs> <laughs> we're all a bunch of, uh, we're, we're just a bunch of Martians who invaded Earth. Yes, we got, it's time to take back the home world. Um, yes. Our exile is over. But yes. um, the, if we found that, what does that do to the to the idea of going to Mars? Because ah, yeah, well, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left before my heart out, but I'll try to be quick. Um, it completely changed our not only our understanding of Mars and its geological history, but it also uh, had a huge effect on how we approach Mars. Now we do uh, planetary protection, which is an attempt to keep from infecting Mars with Earth microbes because we don't want it to mess around with Mars's microbes uh, if they have any. Um, and it would be like all of a sudden Mars would be like off limits until we very carefully figured out how best to study the life forms without disturbing their ecosphere. The one benefit that planetary exploration has is we don't need to worry about environmental effects. Like nobody cares about, you know, carbon emissions on the moon or whatever. But if Mars has its own biosphere, then we have to deal with all of that as well. And we want to not perturb it or disturb it. All of that having been said, oh, oh, and also it would just make, of, of course, a huge effect on our understanding of the solar system and, and how life evolved and where it evolved. And we first thing we'd want to know is, are we related or was it a second genesis? Either way, it's amazing. E either way, it means that either we were seeded by Mars or vice versa, which is incredible, or there was a second genesis, meaning that Mars independently developed life, which means the Drake equation is turned upside down on its head, and that means there's probably life all over the damn place in the galaxy. Either way, though, um, unfortunately, I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, I strongly suspect Mars has no life and never had any life. And the reason I say this is because Life is very, very good at evolving to go into different areas. It's very good at evolving to slowly changing ecological conditions. Mars lost its uh, atmosphere and its oceans very slowly. It took hundreds of millions of years. So if it had life back then, the life would have evolved still with the changing environment, and it would still have life now. And if you, um, if you take any random sample from Earth, you're going to find it absolutely riddled with life, just completely riddled with life. It'd be very hard for you to find any, a fistful of air, dirt, water, or ice, or anything that has no evidence of life in it. And so I believe that once a planet has life, it's going to get life everywhere. And we haven't seen that on Mars, which leads me to believe it's never been there at all. Indeed. Yet, you know, maybe. Um, you can hope. You can hope. You can hope. We've, we well. Look, I would just, love to be wrong. Just we now know that liquid water. You know, just today, liquid water may exist uh, beneath the surface of Mars. On that note, Andy has a hard out. So, Andy, thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope someday yeah. you'll come back and chat with me again. Yeah, sounds great. Event Horizon is created by John Michael Godier, Ross Campbell, and Erin Knight. Hosted by John Michael Godier, produced by Ross Campbell, with Anna, voiced by Erin Knight.